And the point of all of this is that God wants us to be fruitful people accomplishing his tasks. We have to live fruitful lives because that is why God has planted us here. You have found the podcast of Tressler Mennonite Church. Each week, we replay the sermon from our Sunday morning service so that anyone who might have missed the sermon can catch it later. This sermon was from November 19, 2023, and the text was Titus, chapter 3. Some of you have been to our house, and you know we have a little orchard, and in that orchard along our one driveway, we have a peach tree. We planted it in the spring of 2006, so it's about 17 years old, at least on our property, and I realize I don't have a lot of pictures of it, but here are two pictures that I do have, one from 2010. I'm guessing the first year it bloomed really well, which is why we took a picture of it, but the other is actually, it was in the background that I tried to zoom in and because, anyway, I don't have a lot of pictures of it, but it's a very nice peach tree. It's well-shaped, it's very healthy, it's pruned well, everything about it is awesome, except, well, I mean, for those of you who have knowledge of our orchard situation know that it has one giant flaw, which is that it doesn't produce peaches. It did one time. One time, year 2019, we actually took several pictures that time, and they were very nice peaches, and they're also very rare. Other years, I think we've had four or five, maybe. Its problem, its problem is that it blooms far too early. It blooms so early in the spring that usually we get, at our property at least, a frost or a freeze at some point after it's bloomed, and that wipes out the entire year's productivity. So it's a beautiful peach tree. It's a wonderful peach tree, but it is probably going to have an ultimate meeting with the chainsaw at some point soon because a peach tree that does not produce peaches is a waste of space. So actually, we did try to multiple things to try to save the crops each year. We put plastic over it and space heaters under it one year. Another year, I put a sprinkler out and covered it with water. That works extremely well with strawberries, which is why I can grow strawberries just fine on our property, although I often have to do this. It just about killed the tree that year, which I guess was just before it finally did produce in 2019, but it didn't kill it, and so be it. But the point is, I'm not here to talk about peaches or peach production or orchard site locations or anything like that, but there's sort of a moral to this, which you figured out. The whole point of planting a peach is because you want fruit. A peach tree, no matter how well it looks, no matter how healthy it is in other cases or other ways of looking at it, the whole point is that you want fruit. And a peach tree that is unfruitful or unproductive will probably ultimately be cut down and replaced by something that will be fruitful. And I share this because we're talking about Titus chapter 3, and in verse 14, Paul writes, our people, 
Our people must learn to do good by meeting the urgent needs of others, and then they will not be unproductive. And one translation phrased it, then they will not be unfruitful. And that got my mind thinking in this way, but it works whichever word you might use. God wants us to be productive, to be fruitful people, just like I want the trees in my orchard to be productive and fruitful trees. So that's why we're here um, to kind of summarize where we're at in Titus, but using that orchard metaphor, you can say that Paul has written about the importance of having good gardeners who are going to take care of the orchard. He's warned against practices that can actually hinder the trees from being productive. He's written advice about other practices that help the trees in the orchard to be fruitful. And then he's explained that God has purchased planted that orchard, which is why we need to take care of it. And today's passage repeats a little bit of these same themes, and it spends some time warning against certain bad practices that might harm the fruit trees. And then it ends with Paul telling us that the whole point of all of this is that God wants a fruitful orchard. That's sort of using the metaphor. No metaphor is perfect, but, but keep these thoughts and ideas in your mind as we go through this passage. And maybe Maybe you'll, you'll understand a little bit better. I hope. Anyway, we're in Titus chapter 3, the very end. This is the last chapter of this series. Jerry noted that the break between chapter 2 and 3 is a little bit arbitrary, so he got a little bit of chapter 3 to finish off his thoughts, and I'll end up grabbing just a little bit of chapter 2 again. But I'm also going to focus primarily on verses 8 to 15, I think, although I'll read, I'll read all of it. The book of Titus is a letter written by Paul, to a younger man named Titus, hence the name of the letter. So Paul left Titus on the island of Crete. Paul had traveled on to continue his missionary work, and he asked Titus to stay there to appoint good and godly leaders to watch over the churches that are on that island. Paul then describes what these leaders ought to be like, and he says it's really important to call these leaders soon because there are false teachers and false leaders who are arising in these churches already. And so Paul says, make sure that you call these good and godly leaders because that's the best way of countering these false teachers. And that was chapter one. And then Paul gave specific guidance for how to teach old people and young people, men and women. He even wrote about guiding slaves, or maybe we could say people who do work for others. And, and as I read that, a pattern is there. It's, it's not always worded the same way, but there's a pattern in which Paul says, teach these people to have self-control and teach them to live honorable and upright lives so that people watching from outside will see and glorify God because of what they see for the people in the church. And that's the first part of chapter 2. And here, actually, I think we can jump and grab a little bit of chapter 3 in our passage for today because Paul also writes some advice about how to guide people in the way that they live within their community around them. He said, "...remind the believers to submit to the government and to its officers." They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. They must not slander anyone, and they must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. And this sounds to me a lot like the advice he gave to other groups of people. Self-control is not mentioned here directly, but I think it's implied, and it's mentioned in the other places, a theme of self-control, of living in a way that brings honor to God and is good and upright. Certainly there could be other sermons sort of delving into some of these details, especially about how Christians relate to the government. Scripture has this very clear theme here in this passage, but in many others as well, of, of submission and honor and respect for the authorities and, and not just 
the ones we like, of course, and not just the laws we like. But the scripture also has another consistent theme that reminds us that Jesus is our true king. And so we are ultimately to give our allegiance to him. And in that sense, we're not, we're not really Americans or, or whatever country God has placed us in. We're not really citizens of that nation. We're citizens of Jesus' kingdom. And, and I, I, I find myself wondering if it might have been easier for Paul to sort of keep all this straight in his mind because Rome 2,000 years ago to someone like Paul, while well, they imprisoned him, they persecuted him, ultimately they executed him. So it's probably easier for him to realize that his, his citizenship is with Jesus' kingdom, but he's living in Rome, and so he needs to be respectful and obedient to the authorities that are there. We are blessed with a different, much, much better situation, but in the midst of that blessing, we still need to remember that Jesus is our king, and he is our Lord. And so it's complicated, but that's maybe another sermon for another time. So, so Paul gives advice for men and women, old and young, and slaves, and also how to live as citizens. And he has that same theme through it all. And that's, that's chapter 2 with just this little bit of chapter 3 grabbed in. And then I want to read a bit more of chapter 3 that kind of summarizes what's been going on here. Once we too were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. So Paul seems to be pretty clear that we were messed up people. Um, the details vary from person to person, of course, as to exactly how our lives are broken or the ways that we have hurt other people, but it seems to be consistent that we are broken people who need to be rescued. And so he goes on, says, but... When God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth, new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. So that's why that God asks us to live new, transformed lives that are full of self-control and honorable living, because he has rescued us. Jerry talked about this last week. That was his, his sermon. We need to know how to live, and we need to know why. The how, the upright lives, self-control, honorable living. The why, because God has rescued us and bought us, transformed us. But remember my story about the peach tree. Using that metaphor, God planted the orchard. He owns the orchard. And maybe you could say God purchased that orchard from a careless owner who had abused it and neglected it. God purchased it at a great price to rescue it. And because of that, he has the right to tell the workers how to live, how to take care of the trees, what to do to help the trees be the best they can be. But there's another aspect of this, which is what our chapter today is talking about, the whole point of the orchard is to bear fruit. So Paul writes in verse, verse 8, he says, This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these teachings so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. These teachings are good and beneficial for everyone. There is this outcome, this goal that God is looking for, this fruitfulness or productivity that he wants, and that's the point of it all. I'm going to come back to 9 through 11 to give it a little bit more time on its own, but I'm going to jump to verse 12 here just for the moment. When you read this, it almost seems like 12 to 15 or just sort of a 
uh, tag on the end of a little bit of planning notes or whatever, and it can read that way, and it is, but there's also a little bit more to it that reminds us of the point of productivity, fruitfulness. Paul writes, I'm planning to send either Artemis or Tychicus to you, and as soon as one of them arrives, do your best to meet me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to stay there for the winter. Do everything you can to help Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos with their trip. See that they are given everything they need. So I, I take it that Paul is planning to send someone to help Titus there in his work of appointing leaders to assisting with the teaching. And, and so part of it is to help Titus out, but part of it is to give him some flexibility so that he can go and see Paul in person for a little bit and catch up. But the main theme of the letter seems to continue with a very practical example. We have these two people, Zenus and Apollos. They're leaving on a trip, and Paul says, you need to help them out generously. Make sure they have everything they need because... Our people must learn to do good by meeting the urgent needs of others. Then they will not be unproductive. So a church, a church needs to do the things that a church needs to do, not, not just because God ordered it, not because he's in charge. I mean, in some ways that should be enough. He is our Lord. But, but there, is a, there is a why, there's a purpose. God wants the church to be fruitful and productive. So we care for others so that those people have their needs met and they can be productive. So these two people needed to do their job, to go on their journey. The church was going to help them do that well. But in the process of doing that, then the church itself was doing its point and it was being productive and fruitful as well. The last verse to finish off the whole chapter in the book, everybody here sends greetings Please give my greetings to the believers, all who love us. May God's grace be with you all. So, of course, I did skip those verses earlier. If you remember way back, for those of you who were here, chapter 1, Paul mentioned false leaders, false teachers who were present. How about how they might distract and harm people, preventing the people from being fruitful and productive. And here... Towards the end of his letter, Paul sort of hits the same theme again. There are things that can prevent people from being fruitful and productive, things that hinder us. He says, do not get involved in foolish discussions about spiritual pedigrees and quarrels and fights about obedience to Jewish laws. These things are useless, a waste of time. If people are causing divisions among you, give a first and second warning, and after that, have nothing to do with them. For people like that have turned away from the truth, and their own sins condemn them. And so it, I've noticed, unfortunately, sometimes in churches over the years, there are, there are foolish discussions and things that are useless and a waste of time. And we can at least take some, some uh, uh, I don't know what word I want to say there. We can understand that this is how it's been, because this is how people always are. Paul had the deal with the same thing. It doesn't excuse it, but it is a part of the human condition. When, we, when churches have conflicts, when people get into the discussions and arguments about all sorts of different things, people get hurt. And sometimes, of course, the worst that can happen is that people wander away, get pushed away, or run away from the church because of what's going on, and they turn away from Jesus entirely. And sometimes... Eternity is changed for those people because of the conflicts that we were having within the church. And, and when we think about it that way, maybe we understand why Paul uses kind of a, he's kind of a strong wording. If people are causing divisions among you, give a first and second warning. 
and after that, have nothing to do with them. That seems so, it seems harsh until you think about the fact that there are people who have caused conflicts and quarrels, and that has driven people away from God forever. So look at it that way, and we understand the strength of his words. But of course, as I have lived and been part of churches for, well, my whole life at this point, one of the things I noticed is that it's very rare for people to be in a place of conflict and division, discord arising in the church, and both people on all the sides say, well, this is actually useless and a waste of time, but we're going to fight about it anyway. I, I mean, Often people on the outside looking in will say, this is useless and a waste of time. Why are you fighting about it? But the people in it usually don't because they have some understanding that in their minds that this is something that is important. So I was... Reading this, I understand it. I have seen conflict. I have seen how this hurts. I've seen people who have turned away from God, and I hope not forever, but, but I'm still waiting for some to turn back. And, and yet, well, I remember a number of years ago, I was asked to serve on a committee that was made up of people from different conver- congregations who were to get together and have conversations about, well, about differences within the church of concerning marriage. So this was, this was quite a number of years ago, and, and so there were people from certain churches. This was one who had people who were, who were convinced that God had called for marriage to be one man, one woman for life. Grace in the midst of brokenness there, but this is his vision and his goal. And that's, that's my view. It's what I was there to sort of represent. There were other people who were on the committee, who congregations who had been advocating in their towns and their communities for permission to marry same-sex relationships. This was before, before the rulings changed the law of the land there on that topic. And so there was a great disagreement here and division. And these were, these were things that people were, were sort of worked up about. And I found myself as I was reading this thinking, was that useless division? Was this sort of foolish discussions about spiritual rules or fights about, about things like this? Or, or was this important and did it matter? And so we know, we know from our lived experience that Paul is right, that there are times when divisions really are hurtful in a church. And then we know from lived experience that there are times when churches discuss things that are, are important. How do we know what the difference is for ourselves if we're in the midst of it? So I had this idea, um, reflecting on Dale Keffer's second to most recent visit, one in August. He was meeting with the church council, and he was just asking about what's going on. For those of you who are new, he is a new overseer that we have called to to give guidance to our church, but he didn't know us at all at this point, really. So what's our history? What's what's going on? What has been our story in the last 20 or 30 years? To kind of give context as he gets to know us. And, and he mentioned that over the years, we've had some, some conflict in the past, not so much recently. And he said, I don't, I don't really need to know all the details. But he said, from his experience, when he gets called to a church, maybe in the midst of conflict, and they want advice and guidance, there's so often people who will say, well, that person or that leader is too liberal or too conservative, and it's really important. And he said, but if I press in and I get to know people and I start asking questions so often, it's about broken relationships. And often it's about families that have relationships that are broken that then spreads throughout the church. And it's not really about the issues. And so that was in my mind as I read these verses. And I found myself, well, Paul is very clear that division is terrible. We shouldn't tolerate it. And yet 
And yet there are issues and topics that are very important. And how do we, how do we think about this? And so I have an idea, and I want your, I want your thoughts. I share this not as, as brilliance. I mean, I think it's brilliant, or I wouldn't share it. But I don't know what you will think. But I share this with you just sort of to get you thinking and stirring. So the one thing in the back of my mind is this idea that we can have conflict with people when we are good friends with those people. So again, back to that committee. As I met with the people on the committee, I realized that we have some important disagreements, stuff that I felt was worth talking about. But I also became friends with them. There are people that I enjoyed interacting with. And maybe you have people in your own life like that as well. Maybe in your family or coworkers or neighbors, people that you enjoy, they're your friends, and you disagree with them. If you think about that, we can have these disagreements and we can say, you know, I, I, I love that person, but I cannot be in the same church with them. And again, on that committee, that's how we, how we realized what was going on, that we enjoyed eating together. We enjoyed telling stories. We had a lot of fun as we talked. But, but if I lived in their town, I would have had to go to a different church than theirs. And if they had lived here, they would have had to come to a different congregation. So, so you can have close friendships and disagreements. And in those, when that's happening, then I'm suspicious that their disagreement is about a real thing. Because this is a friendship. You know the people. You like the people. So my, my sort of, my thought is, my test is if, if there's conflict arising in your church, and you're trying to decide, is this what Paul's talking about here? Where we need to tell people, you need to stop this, you know, let's get out. Or is this an important thing to talk about? Well, gather the people who disagree together into a room. Pull out some cakes, some cookies, some pies, some cider, some tea, coffee, whatever you like to drink. Get some games together and see if they can have fun. In other words, is the relationship good? If the relationship is good, but they still disagree, it's probably something that is important and needs to be dealt with. But if you pull them all together and they're all sitting there and they're kind of, it's a broken relationship. And that's what we need to deal with first. And I think maybe that's what Dale was trying to describe to us. We need to deal with broken relationships, of course. That's part of what the church is for, but we shouldn't get the two confused. Deal with the broken relationships, and then maybe the other will go away, or maybe we'll be able to properly handle the other later. So anyway, back to our passage. Paul knows that there are foolish disagreements that bring conflict within a church that drive people away. And sometimes I think we need to understand that when we drive people away, sometimes we drive them away from God forever. There are people who will never be in heaven because of conflicts that happened within congregations over things that don't matter. But there are things that do matter. So focus on, do you have a good relationship with that person that you disagree with? Let that be first, and if you do, then deal with the other. But if you don't, don't get them confused. Work on the relationship first. So this is my proposal, an idea. You can let me know what you think. But I want to try to summarize again what we have been working on in this sort of second half of the book of Titus. Paul is writing. He says, teach people to live self-controlled, honorable, upright lives, he says, you see, there were once, all of us were once hurting and broken people, but God has rescued us. He has transformed us into new people. And now that we are those new people, 
then we need to go and we need to show this to the people around us by the way we take care of them and the way we relate to them and the way we love them. And the point of all of this is that God wants us to be fruitful people accomplishing his tasks. Sometimes we're inclined to get distracted by some conflicts or arguments, and Paul says, don't, it's not worth it. We have to live fruitful lives because that is why God has planted us here. So a huge part of being fruitful is meeting together and working together to make sure that we take care of each other. If your needs are met, you will be a more fruitful person. But in the process of meeting your needs, this is also helping me be fruitful in what God has called me to do. And it goes the other way around. None of us are always the givers or always the receivers. So all of this makes us fruitful people accomplishing the tasks that God has given us to do. been listening to the Tressler Mennonite Sermon from November 19, 2023. The passage was Titus chapter 3. Take care.